Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... Recorded live at the Idler Festival at Fenton House in Hampstead, here's psychoanalyst Josh Cohen on his book, Not Working. You pick up a copy of the book immediately after the event um, in about 45 minutes in the bookshop. Thanks, Tom. I'm just going to introduce Josh a little more, if I may. Josh Cohen is a psychoanalyst in private practice and a professor of modern literary theory at Goldsmiths, University of London, and previously is the author of The Private Life, Why We Remain in the Dark, and How to Read Freud, as well as other books and articles on psychoanalysis, cultural theory and modern literature, and now, obviously, not working, Why We Have to Stop, which is what we're here to talk about today. And Josh is going to read us a bit of the book to kick us off. Okay, thank you. And thank you, Tom. It's very nice to have such a generous inter- introduction from none other than Tom Hodgkinson. Although I, I was slightly unsettled at, at kind of being given the, the, the official cast of um, legitimacy in talking about the subject. I feel so much more spiritual affinity with the bum who's read a bit of Dr. Johnson and <laughs> thinks he can talk about laziness. Um, so uh, this is a little sort of memoiristic section of the book where I talk uh, about the end of my A-levels and the abortive attempt at a year off, uh, a year off that didn't actually happen. And this, this little section tries to explain why it also crosses it with some meditations on one of the most famous short stories in the English language, a story by Herman Melville called Bartleby the Scrivener. We can say more about that perhaps in our conversation. I won't read too much into the stuff on Bartleby. So I start in the present day. The words I hear in the consulting room are frequently cross-hatched by words and images and feelings etched into my mind by both life and literature. When I hear the wish to sleep, for example, from my patients, to nullify all demands for action, the refrain of Herman Melville's cadaverous legal copyist, Bartleby, comes to me unbidden. I would prefer not to. More than an association, the phrase is a kind of gift from my unconscious to my conscious ear, hinting at how to hear what the patient is saying. These messages from the interior are embedded in the memory of my relationships with the books in which I found them. 
If the famous phrase from Bartleby the Scrivener comes to mind, so too do the few sultry months of inactivity between school and university when, suddenly bereft of aim or direction, my bookshelf became a fragile life raft on an unnavigable sea. When I left the A-level exam room for the last time, I looked into the blazing June sun and saw a cosmic affirmation of my plan for the year to come. Following the trail blazed by many before me, I would work, save and travel before returning, brimming with newly minted knowledge of the world's many ways to take up my university place. Within a few days, my confidence had yielded to blind panic as I came face to face with the painful truth that imagining and doing are not the same thing. I'd devised my gap year plan without a thought for the business of actually carrying it out, and my complacency had caught up with me. Having failed to secure meaningful work, I was looking down the barrel of nine months of the exasperation of retail managers with hopelessly airy types like me, nine months during which I might save just enough of my risible hourly pay for a return flight to Hanoi or Bratislava. (laughs) I had no companion or, it dawned on me, any desire to travel. (laughs) I visualised myself wandering the vestibules of Rome the watts of Chiang Mai the beaches of Goa and felt only the heavy downward pull of indifference (laughs) when I phoned my university and was told I could take up my place that autumn my lungs filled with sweet relief commingled with sour defeat now what? For the ten weeks before term started, I was free to do anything or be anywhere. I floated aimlessly through London, falling out of bed at noon to wander towards one park or another, carrying one book or another. From my current place in the middle of my fifth decade, deep in the mire of adult responsibility, it's hard to imagine an existence more blissfully in tune with the blank contentment of Ru's daily life. Ru is uh, a rabbit that I talk about earlier on, who, you know, I became rather enamoured with because, well, he just never did anything. (laughs) Um, But for my adolescent self, that expanse of solitary days under the white glare of the sky was a plunge into depressive confusion, an unaccountable fall from the grace of self-certainty. It was a good time to find Bartleby. He appeared in a volume of Melville stories. It sits to my left as I write this, a 1961 New American Library paperback bearing the chiselled bust of Billy Budd, its pages pulling away from their binding so I don't open them at an angle of more than 45 degrees. A sudden breeze had woken me up earlier than usual that day. Shortly after, I pulled the book from its resting place atop a row of biggles and famous fives and began reading in the morning shade of the patio. Billy Budd's sailor seemed long and oppressively nautical. I skipped to Bartleby the Scrivener. Towards the end of the story, the narrator, an unnamed attorney, describes himself as thunderstruck, like the man who, pipe in mouth, was killed one cloudless afternoon long ago in Virginia by summer lightning. At his own warm open window he was killed and remained leaning out there upon the dreamy afternoon till someone touched him and he fell. I can remember vividly the effect of these lines which had me catatonic with fright and excitement. It struck me that I joined this chain of thunderstruck men. I had been the attorney for as long as I could remember, guided like him by the profound conviction that the easiest way of life is the best, seeking always to restore equilibrium at the slightest hint of its disturbance. This was just what I'd done in counselling my gap years, though, intuiting the impending train wreck of my life story, I had pulled the nearest emergency cord and braked just in time.
I just want to say, it kind of helped uh, escape the notice of most people in the room. Josh Code here, psychoanalyst, literary critic, writer, has quite a lot of jobs for someone who wants us to, uh, to work less hard. But um, as a, with your psychoanalyst hat on, Josh, as, as Tom mentioned in his introduction, you started to see people coming in to your practice who were overworked, burnt out, but I guess didn't really know how to sort of articulate that because that's not something that we're supposed to, in today's world, feel that we can complain about, is it? It isn't, and in fact, it's not necessarily, frequently not, what they came to the the, the sort of case histories that I talk about. Don't necessarily imagine that that's what they came here to complain about. You know, there was a particular sort of set of symptoms or there was a particular uh, life crisis that they felt needed addressing. And it wasn't necessarily, I mean, except in one very obvious case that I talk about in the book, it wasn't necessarily burnout that they were bringing to the consulting room. What happens, though, is almost from the very beginning, whatever they thought they were going to get from this hour or two hours or three hours in the week, soon sat alongside a different aim or a different kind of pleasure, which was simply having a space in which no demands or expectations were imposed upon them. Uh, A sealed space where the door wasn't going to open, where they could know that nothing was going to, to use the words of of the the Bartleby attorney, nothing would invade their peace. And just the strangeness of that for them in the first instance, the fact that they weren't familiar with a kind of the possibility of silence and also of naming for themselves what they wanted to do with a spare hour rather than having it immediately filled with the expectations and demands that you know the people and the institutions and the places uh, around them told them they needed to get involved with and so that sense of what psychoanalysis was about started to to take over a lot of the work and for me um, it became more than a kind of uh, benign side effect It, it became sort of a theme that I started noticing within work with a specific patient or client um, and across many, that, that this was um, both a personal and internal phenomenon where people simply had lost a sense of communication with their inner lives, but also very much a cultural phenomenon because the thing is people think of psychotherapy as a kind of very sealed-off practice, as something that is going on between two minds in, you know, in two interior lives. But actually, you know, cultural phenomena invade the consultant room in all kinds of ways all the time. And so this is partly about the way that overwork and the culture of kind of incessant activity and distraction invades our lives. So what sort of things, what sort of, you know, maladies or conditions are we seeing now that we can in some way relate to overwork? Yeah, I mean, the, the, the first chapter, I mean, the, the book is organised really through four typologies of, um, a ty- kind of a typology of inertia in which you get four types, the burnout, the slob, the daydreamer and the slacker. Um, the, these are all kind of different ways of inhabiting a kind of inertial persona and uh, uh, an inactive orientation to life. And the first two, uh, in a way, the, the idea is that they're kind of brought down by the force of gravity. And the second two 
um, are in a way more positive cases because they use the imagination to escape the force of gravity. So they kind of fly away from the uh, the weight, if you like, of their own kind of minds and bodies. Um, but the first chapter is about kind of involuntary weighing down by the force of life, and it's about the burnout. And burnout was really uh, a phenomenon that's not necessarily that much associated with psychotherapy and psychoanalysis, because in a way it sounds more like an occupational therapy thing. It sounds like something that would be treated more within the workplace, within a sort of short-term treatment that was about sort of restoring people by doing good physical and mental exercises. But I, I saw it as sort of, sort of something that was much more deep going, really. That, that one of the things that, that burnout was, and burnout is a kind of inheritor of something that was once called, um, in the sort of turn of the, of the 20th century, um, it was known as neurasthenia. Mm-hmm. Um, and neurasthenia was really a diagnosis of a nervous system that is overloaded by the excess of stimulus and activity that was particularly kind of visible um, with the emergence of the modern city, you know, where where people suddenly found themselves imposed upon internally in a way that was completely new for them. So, for example, you know, the sociologist Georg Simmel uh, noticed that people were seeing more other people in a day than, you know, their grandparents might have seen in an entire lifetime. And and there's something that about that that kind of, you know, imposes its kind of traumatic load on the nervous system. And we have a kind of update of that. Um, you know, it's been, been taken to uh, an extreme degree, I think, in our culture of social media, uh, a kind of always-on 24-7 culture, where... People are in a state of perpetual anxiety and always having to answer to the demands of the external world, which means shutting off from the call um, and the needs and the desires of their internal world. And that's what, I mean, one of the patients that I talk about was a, a, a corporate banker. I mean, I, the, all, all for confidentiality purposes, all the stories are quite heavily disguised. So uh, they're, they're composite cases. But I, I talk about um, a young banker who was working 90-hour weeks and who one morning did not sort of bounce out of bed um, to his usual 5 o'clock alarm, but decided he was going to stay in bed a bit longer and a bit longer and a bit longer. And then he realised he wasn't going to work, so he just got up and sort of without knowing what he was doing, took himself off to Starbucks and then took himself off to Tesco's and he piled his basket very high with ready meals and he came back to his, his sort of slightly solar sleek apartment and he just binge watched um, uh, box sets for you know the day and then the week and he suddenly realised he wasn't going back to work and I mean it, you know it was an extraordinary story really startling story to be told and, and, and there was a quality of a living Bartleby about him you know sort of dressed in, in these um, sort of very worn out dirty Uh, sports closed he told me he'd once been a jock he definitely didn't look like a jock and what we started to talk about really was was that as far as he was concerned he'd never really felt he had a right to an inner life he'd never felt he had a right to his own desire that he had been carried along by this wave of expectation um, in his sporting prowess in his professional uh, well in his academic achievement 
and then very quickly onto uh, professional achievement. That this was very much kind of instilled in him by by a, a robust and uh, demanding parental regime at home, very much linked to guilt and to the shame of inadequacy if he wasn't continuing to achieve. And so, in a way, this kind of you know not waking up, not not getting up, was um, a, a kind of spiritual protest. So I wanted in a bit to talk about the ways in which work has changed <coughs> today. Um, one of those ways of which you've just alluded to is, you know, email, for instance, sort of demands <coughs> that a lot of people are working, are contactable for work 24 hours a day, which is obviously not something that used to happen. But also now the rise of social media, even for, <coughs> for more people, has meant that we have to curate a certain image of ourselves that we're putting out all the time. And of course, most people don't have... PR people, they were doing this themselves. And, and there's, you know, various cases of online celebrities who have sort of destroyed their reputations on yeah. by being let loose on, on social media. But, you know, for every you know, for ordinary people, this is just a thing that we're doing constantly now, whether it's, you know, constantly posting photographs on Instagram. We're, we're constantly having to think about how we're presenting ourselves to the world. Yeah, and... What I suppose I'm most interested in is what is this doing to our sense of self? When we didn't have an external world that we felt perpetually sort of obliged to present ourselves to, when we didn't feel that we were the sum of the pictures that we could take of ourselves and show to the world, we sort of had to cultivate private spaces. Nothing particularly extraordinary, just ordinary stuff. You know, teenagers (coughs) sitting in their bedrooms, listening to records, staring out of the window being bored or moody. These were not just important activities, but part of the way that we formed our selfhood. Now, if those teenagers are instead um, externalising themselves, if, they, if, if their concern is not, well, who am I and how am I going to find myself <coughs> in this stinking pit of a bedroom, but how am I going to uh, project myself to the world outside? What is the image I want to present? That I think, presents the, at least the possibility or the, the risk of a completely different model of selfhood um, where we turn ourselves inside out and we think of our private selves as just sort of an inconvenience that you need to get beyond. Um, but the, the thing is that the private self, always, it always comes back to bite you, you know, particularly if people say nasty things to you on social media, which is something that comes up as well um, in the consulting room. As people say nasty things to you, you suddenly realise that you certainly do have a private life and, and a self that you want to look after and, and nurture. And so I wanted to talk about how work has changed, the emphasis on work. And again, although it's a lovely day today, but you know, I imagine most people in this room you know, would be familiar. You know, we all live in normally cold protestant northern europe and most people will be familiar with the concept that hard work is a moral good that's mm. what we're, we're we're raised to think once upon a time work was just something you had to do mm. right if you, you worked on a farm or something it was backbreaking work but it was something that you had to get complete and then you finished and you went to bed now we're in a more secular culture perhaps the religious aspects have been taken out of it but in you know a neoliberal world work is something that we're supposed to define ourselves through. It's not just something to do and leave and go home, but it's something all-consuming and something through which we're supposed to gain self-worth. 
Yeah, yeah, that's right. You remind me, there's a, a really lovely essay by the um, Austrian writer Peter Hanke called On Tiredness, and um, he talks there about his youth on, on a farm and how um, he, he worked on the threshing machine. And actually, it really was back-breaking and also kind of orally exhausting. There's absolutely no sort of, you know, bucolic nostalgia about the piece. But what he says is, at the end of this, you know, exhausting working day, you got to be exhausted. You got to um, be given over completely to yourself. And um, there was something then quite gratifying about the muscular and mental um, state of, you know, of, of, of being at the end of your rope because you were done for the day. And I think the difference between burnout and exhaustion is that burnout is a state of paralysis which is accompanied by the perpetual anxiety of there being something else to do and not having the resources in you to go and do it, which I think induces a kind of perpetual shame and a sense of inadequacy. And I, I think that that is the difference, really, that has been insinuated into our culture of work. Um, we've always excoriated idleness. We've always you know, demonised the people who don't work. Um, uh, you know, we know that it goes back to the Bible and probably before that that, that the non-working were um, tormented, were, were you know excluded from the kingdom of God um, and from the the community of humankind. And of course, you know the the various sort of tabloid fantasies that we get now about you know a kind of subculture of malingerers and 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 idlers and. Um, uh, scroungers who who uh, you know are living these wonderful lives at, at, at the expense of us hard working tax paying citizens, but but it's it's part of the same um, line of thinking that that runs through the history of civilization, but it's hard to see how that could become in a way more malign. But the the thing is that you're right. Work at a certain point was marked off from non work. Um, and in a way, it was important to mark that off. And I think particularly with um, the Protestant Reformation, the idea came into being, and this is what Max Weber's famous <coughs> essay is about, the, the Protestant ethic and the spirit of capitalism. The idea came into being as work as a vocation, which is a very kind of, you know, it's a religiously resonant word. Um, it's also a very psychologically resonant word. You know, the idea that you're called... <coughs> There's something from within, not just, you know, an external authority, an irritating boss who tells you that you need to be doing stuff, but something from within makes you identify with a kind of internal voice that says you must be working harder. That This is part of your spiritual destiny and part of your share of reward or punishment in the world. And that insinuation of guilt and shame and um, a kind of imperative to always be doing more. I think that comes when, you know, religion, if you like, endorses work, not just as something that's kind of a virtuous element of your life um, and, and fends off idleness, but, but is, is your, your actual spiritual substance. But there are ways now which are fashionable to deal with this. So even like, you know, companies might suggest courses in mindfulness or even perhaps 
if I may be so bold, certain fields of therapy, um, which seem to me in some way insidious, and these are sticking plasters. So mindfulness might be nice, but it's a way of us dealing with how tough our jobs are. It's not doing anything to change our situation. Yeah, I I think um, the way that mindfulness has been sort of wrenched and distorted from its original sources, which belong to a kind of broad spiritual worldview. You know, it's, it's, it's a way of life. It's not a kind of instrumental exercise that you can fit into your lunch hour. I think this is what I find uh, a, bit, a bit frightening about the ways in which certain kind of techniques of meditation and relaxation have been brought into working culture, that the, the idea, actually is to find a space in yourself that isn't about work, isn't about productivity, isn't about purposefulness, but is the opposite, that is not afraid to drift, to be aimless, to sort of throw off the shackles of activity. Once you put mindfulness in the service of productivity and purposefulness, um, not only does it become, you know, does it have a different aim or function, it also becomes a different quality of experience because if you're in a lunchtime mindfulness session, if you're <coughs> squeezing in between meetings, then it obviously becomes another activity to, to feel inadequate about, you know, <laughs> to, to, to worry in your mindfulness that you're not quite being mindful enough, <laughs> that you are sure that the, the guy next to you seems, seems to be breathing much more mindfully than you. <laughs> um, and... I think that the, the culture of relaxation generally has become competitive. You know, sleep has become a competitive sport. Um, Silicon Valley types have been have been uh, are boasting with stats from their you know their wearable um, uh, sleep uh, uh, wristbands, uh, sleep monitoring wristbands. You know, they're they're boasting that they got they got their full eight and a half hours last night, and they're now ready to power through the world. You, you know, on, on on Instagram, you get people um, presenting their sort of uh, beatifically relaxed poses on a sun lounger by an infinity pool somewhere in wherever. And the thing is that their kind of tautness and their state of absolute repose feels like it's been backbreakingly hard work. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. 
Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. I want to talk about the, the idea of the artist, which you posit in the book as oppositional to the idea of useful, productive work, I guess. And I leave it aside, I guess, for the for the moment as well, that contemporary art has become one of the most insane vectors of modern capitalism. Yeah. You know, only Russian oligarchs could actually afford to buy any of any of these works. Yeah. But um, he used brilliantly, I think, uh, it's, it's a perfect example here, Tracy Emin's work, My Bed, uh, redolent of the, uh, the stinking teenage bedrooms mm-hmm. that, you, that you mentioned earlier on. And this works both as, you know, literally it's a, it's a work that represents a slovenly unkempt bed, but also it's the perfect example. It's taken over from, I can't remember the artist's name, that fella's bricks, as being like the, the go-to example, yeah, that, that you know, people that don't understand or like contemporary art will talk about as being, like, lazy and not really art. And yet this was an absolutely painstakingly recreated artefact. Tell us about why you wanted to talk about that artwork. Yeah, that's right. No, it is, it is the kind of artwork that gets people calling themselves taxpayers, isn't it? Yeah. That's so why we should leave the EU. Then. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> <laughs> Trophy Emmy. Yes. Um, uh, be, it'd, be, it'd be interesting to see if, if she ever gets blamed. Um, uh, anyway, uh, my bed... I, I suppose I was looking at the, at the start of writing this for something, for an image that felt emblematic. And I thought, well, this is probably the most iconic or notorious artwork of our moment. And... Even for people who hate it, it undeniably touched a nerve. It partly touched a nerve because it, you know, often called an unmade, the unmade bed. That was its kind of informal um, label. And the point is that art is supposed to be, um, from a certain perspective, about making, about transformation. Now, she did make something. I mean, this is something that she spent an awful lot of time reconstructing, arranging. She was very sort of concerned about the juxtaposition of different items around the bed, the way that the sheets were disarranged. All of that was important. So, you know, it's very important to to stress the artifactual nature of it. Um, Nonetheless, what she was making was not something that would sort of transform this depressive, inertial, unraveled state, but something that would actually bring it into the room as it was, and one of the things that I'm interested in that that art, the you know the various artists that I talk about in the book, they 
do do something that is transformative or creative, but they don't do it by turning laziness or inertia into something else, you know, not by channeling it so that you get something beautiful and organised and ordered, but actually by sort of bringing these dimensions of ourselves, which are really important, but which we pretend are sort of inconveniences or embarrassments, you know, the fact that we um, feel lazy and the fact that we feel inertial and that we don't want to necessarily do stuff. Um, they bring that into um, our purview. They ask us to contemplate it. And that's really what I thought was so interesting and important about my bed, that it asked us to, to sort of contemplate this state of um, inactive torpidity that most of the time we're just asked to keep out of sight mm. as something um, that's, you know, uh, a, a little embarrassing. Mm-hmm. Um, so, you know, I mean, uh, kudos to, to the idler and to, to, the, mm-hmm. to the whole kind of ethos of, of this festival and the magazine because um, it feels very important that there's a space in culture which actually does encourage us to look at that dimension of ourselves. I think we should we should mention at this point as well. You talked earlier about the morality of work and how very much so this idea of the you know the tabloid bet noir the benefits grounder is 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 an image we're all we're all very familiar with and and obviously you know again thank you very much for the idea to invite me to speak in this beautiful house at this festival but we have to be aware that there's a an, an intense privilege for us to sit here in this beautiful house in Hampstead and talk about this um the idea of the the flaneur is not looked upon in the same way as the benefit scratcher is it? no for sure not. no that's right and uh the, the the benefit scrounger in a way is the image not just of a kind of embarrassment at the inactive I mean I think we outsource a lot of our emotions around this subject to various kind of fantasy figures in culture so there's something in us that loves and admires our own impulse to you know latitude and so we make these folk heroes right out of um, out of lazy characters but they're fictional characters so we have Homer Simpson, we have... Or, or going straight back, you know, to, to Petronius in the Satyricon, you know, um, to Chaucer, to Shakespeare's Falstaff, right up to, you know, Bartleby or, or uh, Goncharov's Oblomov. There are, there are many sort of... Or, or, Jeff uh, Lebowski. Jeff Lebowski is, is you know... Um, that's just your opinion, man. Um, <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, so we outsource our kind of uh, sneaky, uh, surreptitious admiration for these characters. And at the same time, we, uh, as finding a place to project our secret love of laziness onto, we also project our secret or not-so-secret hatred onto benefit scroungers. This is the aspect of ourselves that kind of can't bear or is in a very kind of conflictual relationship to the fact that, uh, and a very resentful relationship. The idea, I think, that we might work and other people wouldn't, I think, is what induces this this particular kind of primitive ire, really, towards the benefit scrounger. That the fantasy that other people are living their cushy lives at our expense, I think. So, so yes, I mean, there there is um, uh, a, a character 
who I think doesn't exist in the form that we want to, you know, the culture wants to imagine it exists. Um, and that if we looked at, you know, the, the people that were actually being called benefit scroungers, you're absolutely right. They don't get that their life is, is so far away from this imagined privilege. Um, and I think, you know, it's also in that sense about our guilt. We, we also don't like the fact that there are people poorer and less privileged and um, less, you know, endowed with opportunity than we are. I want to go back to those, the four categories. You talked about the burnout earlier on at length. And, um, and in the book, you, you use um, Andy Warhol as, as an example of the burnout. In the category of the slob, you talk about Orson Welles. Um, you mentioned earlier that those first two categories are perhaps examples of where this condition has not been beneficial for the, for the person. In the second two categories, the daydreamer, um, Emily Dickinson, who I want to talk about in a moment. But the fourth one, I was surprised to hear you say that because the slacker, David Foster Wallace, didn't end well for him. No, it didn't. No, that's right. Um, why did I choose David Foster Wallace nonetheless? Um, partly, of course, because he was so identified with this image of a kind of, you know, generational slacker ethic, wearing his tennis bandana and preaching a kind of uh, a gospel of meaningful, unregimented, imaginatively fueled um, existence. And I thought that, you know, it was very important to get into that and also to acknowledge that there was this other side to him, which was, of course, um, quite literally suicidally depressed um, and, and weighed down by, you know, the, the, the burden of living. And, uh, you know, actually somebody who imposed terrible expectations and demands on himself. I thought that Foster Wallace's life was split, really, between this intense optimism about the imaginative possibilities of living sort of not inactively, but not oppressed by external regimes, finding a creativity in, in a kind of aimless drift, which is actually why his prose can be, for me anyway, I mean, a lot of people find it, you know, uh, a bit much. But um, for me, there's a kind of imaginative drift um, that he just lets go. You know, I, I talk about this passage in, in um, Infinite Jest where he's describing, well, he's describing two people having sex, but the thing is, he keeps, the camera keeps going to other places in the room. He can't quite decide what to focus on. So you get all these kind of madly irrelevant details that are brought in. And, and, he was described by, by one journalist as a noticing machine. He was somebody who said, look, if you just let your, your kind of perception, your gaze, drift and go wherever it wants to go, it's amazing how interesting and how full the world looks. And it was that, I think, that made me want to think of him as kind of embodying the slacker ethic. On the other hand, there is this, you know, and I, I don't lose sight of this in the book, that there is a kind of depressive underside to inertia, particularly if we, if we feel that we don't, you know, that, that we're under compulsion all the time to, to be, you know, these are people who are inside the problem. They're not gurus who have kind of risen above it and found a way to live perfectly. And certainly that's, that's the case with Foster Wallace. He tried to find another way of living and he was always interested in that right into up to you know that extraordinary last book the pale king but at the same time he got weighed down by 
burdens of internal expectation, feelings of inadequacy um, that in, in the end did for him. One more thing, because I do want to leave us some time for any, any questions that the audience has got. And apart from when we... I want to talk about Emily Dickinson, because apart from when we, we mentioned um, Tracy Emin, we have been talking mainly about men, and it's, it's worth saying that uh, it, often in these cases, you know, there's Homer Simpson cannot do what he does without Marge Simpson That's there true. backing him up. Um, <laughs> it's very important to say. And Emily Dickinson's an, an interesting case here because I think she was... I guess deemed mad by society mm. for taking the actions that she did for her solitude. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And you know, you just wonder what level of robustness and strength um, of of spirit it must have taken to defy those expectations. You know, coming from you know a religious Protestant, profoundly kind of patriarchal atmosphere. And she finds a way to sort of split herself off from the expectations that she spend a life in marriage and domestic servitude. And she does that by withdrawing into her bedroom and scratching perms away um, on on a small bedside table and becoming, you know, uh, as far as I'm concerned, you know, one of the greatest poets who ever lived. And somebody also who liberates herself from the kind of the gravitational burdens of homemaking by travelling into the outer extremities of imaginative and emotional life. I mean, Dickinson is, is, you know, one of two or three writers, I think, that I pick off the shelf more than anybody else. I, I just find myself perpetually gobsmacked by what she can do, by the places that she can take us to. I feel like she went further than almost anybody else has been into the reaches of, of the universe and at the same time she never left her room and and the way that that sort of puts in question so many of our cherished assumptions of what about what constitutes a good life you know a vita activa one that is out there in the world um, not everyone of course can spend their life retreated into a bedroom and it's not it's not that she that she or anybody else provides a model life or tells you how you should live but she does raise fascinating questions about how we should live because she makes us see that actually a creative and meaningful life doesn't necessarily consist in something that, that kind of looks virtuous externally, that you can go incredibly far by staying in one place if you have the imaginative courage to do that. Imagine what she could have achieved, though, if she'd spent three months backpacking in... Thailand. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, she missed a trick there, admittedly. Um, that, that would have done wonders for her poetry. Um, we've got a f- couple of minutes. The have five minutes left. Is there any questions from the audience? And please, if you would be brief. Well, I'll take Tom to get us going. As, you know, yeah, I'll, I'll, he's I'll, on staff. Yeah. But... <laughs> I'll, I'll, um, I'll, I'll break the silence with the awkward first question. Um, and then I'll give him a well, thanks for that. So brilliantly um, expressed. Uh, what about Freud in all this? Did he uh, was he suspicious of idling? Did he think that reflection could lead to brooding and um, you know depression? Yeah, uh, it's it's a great question. Freud was suspicious of idling. He uh, did say that the two forces that led to kind of human fulfilment were love and work. On the other hand, I mean, just two small points to make about Freud. Although he is a model of sort of 
rectitude when it comes to work and scientific discovery and you know was uh, kind of unfeasibly hard working himself six days a week 10 hours a day 24 volumes of, of of the collected works and so on he nonetheless found a way i think to integrate a kind of lackadaisical or receptive maybe a better word a receptive sensibility into daily work because Rather than taking the active stance of the psychiatrist and saying, well, I know all about what's going on with you and and I can tell you if you just answer some simple questions, what's going on with your inner life? He discovered a way of tuning into people's inner lives by by listening to them, by just letting them start talking and, and take the conversation in their own direction. So he was always somebody who's, who's very divided on this and, and towards the end of his life in Civilization and the Discontents there's this lovely footnote because so much of Freud takes place in the footnotes where he says um, you know this sort of constitutional unhappiness that you find in human beings because they're divided uh, between their sort of primitive impulses and their, their need to, for, for order it could be resolved by work but strangely most people seem not to like work <laughs> <laughs> Uh, we are on quarter past, so if there's no hands coming up, I'm going to ask everybody to put their hands together for Josh Kelly. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by Sky Redman, and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.